Before today's interview, I wanted to ask a small favour, really small one, I promise. I got a message from one of my listeners over the weekend letting me know that they had nominated Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. This award is voted for by podcast listeners like you and goes to the podcast who get the most votes from their listeners before the 12th of May this year. As this listener was kind enough to vote for me and for Climbing Consulting, I decided the least I could do was have a go at this award and see where we can get Climbing Consulting to. And to do this, I need your help. If you've enjoyed any of these podcasts, please could I ask you to take a moment to vote for Climbing Consulting for the Listener's Choice Award at the British Podcast Awards 2018. It's really easy to do, and here's how you do it. Step one, go to your browser, pick your phone up right now or on your desktop if you're at work, and type bit.ly forward slash CIC vote, all in little letters, really important, that bit, and that's bit.ly forward slash CIC vote. That will take you to the Listener's Choice Award nomination form on the British Podcast Award website, and that takes you to step two. On that form where it says search for podcast, type Climbing Consulting, and select that as the podcast you want to vote for. At least, I hope you want to vote for Climbing Consulting. Step three, enter your name, enter your email, and hit vote. That's it. Thanks in advance to those of you who have listened to that and are off to vote straight away. Thanks so much to those of you who have already voted. I really appreciate it. It really means a lot to get your feedback. And thanks a lot for helping with this. Please do let me know if you voted for Climbing Consulting, if you've just enjoyed Climbing Consulting, anything and everything, drop me a message. It's nick at climbingconsulting.com. And welcome to another episode of Climbing Consulting, with me, your host, Nick Sinnott. In today's episode, I sit down with Stephen Newton, managing partner of Elixir. Founded back in 2009, Elixir has grown from an idea to a team of 130 people with offices across the UK, US and Africa. Elixir have developed a strong reputation in the market as the challenger consultancy, utilising their entrepreneurial mindset to help clients think differently about the problems they face and how they can overcome them. Stephen has a passion for building businesses and entrepreneurialism, something he looks to instill in all of the team at Elixir. As with many entrepreneurs, Stephen has tried a number of different ventures along the way, and while his previous three did not succeed, something we discuss in detail in today's show, the learnings he took from those failures enabled him to develop Elixir into what it is today. We cover so much in this interview, including the importance of the entrepreneurial mindset, why consulting is the most entrepreneurial career you can have in the corporate world, why you will never succeed if you're focusing on office politics and what you should focus on instead, and finally, what Stephen has learned from his failed startups and what you should take from it. I had a great time speaking with Stephen and learned so much from our conversation. I'm sure you'll enjoy the interview and look forward to hearing what you think. So without further ado, please enjoy my conversation with Stephen Newton. Hi there, Stephen. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for having me, Nick. Not at all. And you're the first person I've interviewed who has their own recording studio. So it's great to be here in the Elixir recording studio recording this. Yeah, I know it is. We use it a lot. So um, it's a good channel. So we enjoy doing these kind of things. So. Yeah, That's definitely. And it's um, we'll come on to your website later, I think, because there's a lot to talk about about your approach there and sure. your use of media like this. Yeah. Before we 
dig into your background and founding Elixir, mm. I wanted to start with something that just really interests me. So in my research, at the end of all of your blogs, I saw the hashtag MSH. And yeah. coming into your office today, in big bright lights, you've got it there right next to, to the reception desk. Sure. Now, I think I can guess what it means. What it's, <laughs> but I'm, I'm really interested in the background of that and where that came from. Yeah, well, look, um, I guess you can tell from my accent that I wasn't born in the UK. Um, I was born in Cape Town. And um, I, I grew up in a society where I guess it must have been perhaps even from the apartheid model. South Africans have this um, very practical mindset. You know, they, they kind of get things done. You know, yeah. always want to make things happen. So MSH stands for uh, make stuff happen, and there's a there's a ruder version of it too. Um, <laughs> that was my guess. But <laughs> yeah, yeah. I like I like the sanitized version as well. Yeah, but um, I think the the point being is that there's so many people who talk about um, good ideas, and I think good ideas are great, but they're only great if you can actually execute on them. So what we've wanted to try do, and I guess what I've tried to do all through my life is just take on projects and make sure I, I give it a go, a proper go, because there's no point turning up if you're not going to play. Yeah. And I think too many people turn up and stand in the stadium instead of trying to get onto the pitch, you know. And I think that's what we try and do is um, a philosophy is just to let's have a go. Let's let's give it a bash. Let's fail fast and let's move on. That's the only way we really make stuff happen. And so it's kind of a mantra I want to try build into the business. And I think also when you reflect on consulting as a as a business, one of the big criticisms of consultants are, you know, give me a watch and I'll tell you your time, right? <laughs> um, Sometimes it is needed. But. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I'll tell you an analogy a little later about um, an ambulance, if you like. But um, but that criticism, in some respects, can be founded, well-founded, if you like. But in some respects, I want to challenge that notion because I think using consultants properly to actually make stuff happen as a catalyst for change is actually where the real value is. And if you have that kind of energy throughout your firm, if you have that energy throughout the people you engage with, then I think, you know, you get a lot more done in, at the end of the day. And, and what is it all about but, but delivering? So, so that's kind of the, the philosophy is, you know, not only good ideas, not only great innovation, but we get stuff done. Well, th thank you for that. And I think that's a, a useful place to start, actually, for mm. my listeners who maybe don't know you as well. Mm. Could you give an overview of your background? Because I think you've got a track record of, like you say, trying to get onto the pitch and mm. not sitting in the stands. Yeah, look, I mean, I, as I say, I grew up in, in Cape Town, and I think that probably shaped a lot of my thinking. I think uh, the one thing I do love about the South African culture is it's a very can-do attitude. Often not very sophisticated, but, um, but you know, there's always pros and cons to everything. You look at people walking along the side of the road selling wood, and that's an entrepreneur. And I, I keep saying this to everybody. The people I have out uh, in my business is the same thing. Being an entrepreneur is not always technology. You know, yeah. nowadays technology, these tech startups are seen as the glamour boys of the entrepreneurial stage, if you like. And, and actually, entrepreneurship goes so much more than that. The guy that starts the corner shop is an entrepreneur. Actually, perhaps more so, because often technology entrepreneurs tend to be inventors rather than entrepreneurs, you know. And I think that there's some real value in understanding the essence of entrepreneurship, you know. Yeah. You know, creating something, buying something, building something, and selling it for more. I mean, that's the essence of being an entrepreneur. And it's one of the things that I learned in my career was that I'm not an inventor, right? I can invent. That doesn't mean I can't invent. But there are better people at inventing Facebook than me, right? Cue Facebook. Yeah. What for you is that 
distinction between, like you say, an, an inventor and an entrepreneur? Because I think it is a really interesting point. Yeah, I, like anything, it's not a black and white thing, right? Mm. I mean, there are shades of gray in this. But I think if you want to have a conversation and understand the differences between things, you, you kind of create the polar arguments, if you know mm. what I mean. So I'm not going to sit here and say that Mark Zuckerberg is an inventor, not an entrepreneur. But I'd say he's more on the inventor side of the, the scale than the entrepreneur side of the scale. Whereas you look at, say, Richard Branson, and I'd say Richard Branson's more an entrepreneur side of the scale. And what are the differences? I mean, I'd say Richard Branson tackles difficult problems. And most people, when they see him tackle something like Coca-Cola, they think that he has a fighting chance of taking it on, right? Yeah. That's one of his failures, funnily enough. Yeah. But, you know, he takes on British Airways and seems to have made a pretty good success of that, right? So, um, or at least the transatlantic channel, he's made a pretty good success of that. So, you know, he's a guy that will take an existing business and try and improve it by innovating within it, if you like. Whereas you get the disruptive innovators that are, tend to be more inventors, like as Zuckerberg created Facebook didn't exist, right? But even in his case, it wasn't the first Facebook. You know, he yeah. it, there was people forget MySpace before that. <laughs> exactly, <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I think for me, I, I, what I try and encourage, particularly in in my firm, is that. And I, you, I mean, I'm trying to get back to the question you actually asked me about. So we will we will go off on tangents. <laughs> I'm happy with that if you are. So yeah. yeah. So as long as you're happy, that's fine. <laughs> Yeah, so what I'm trying to encourage in my firm is for people to recognize that entrepreneurship isn't in this place of the sexy inventor place, you know. It, it can actually be the hard yards. It's the guy that chops the wood on the side of the road in South Africa and sells it for a bit because it makes it gives his family some food for the day, you know. That's an entrepreneur. The guy's understanding an economic model and understanding how he can add value in the system, how he can make value for himself, and that's fantastic. And it's that spirit that I think if we can put more of that energy into into the business culture, the corporate culture, I think everyone would be better off. I mean, I, I sit and I, I often say this, if I was a FTSE 100 CEO, why would I buy a consulting firm if I can turn up and basically hire the people that they hire? You know, what am I getting when I'm hiring a consulting firm then? The thing that I try and introduce to this is it's hard to employ entrepreneurs because by definition, they're unemployable, right? I mean, you've started a business yourself. You know that you had to resign to go and do that, right? That's yeah. what you do. And therefore, entrepreneurs have this itch to want to do something. So I wanted to create an environment where entrepreneurs could flourish, right? I just had a guy resign today to pursue a business that I funded while he was an employee, right? Amazing. And I'm celebrating that. Yeah. You know, I what, think that's... Feel free. What's, what is the business? It's we'll Weber. Help him out. Weber, yeah. I mean, it's fantastic. It's a great idea. It's essentially fitness on demand through the internet. And we, cool. we basically funded his business for the last... Um, 12 months and yeah. paid his salary as an investment, but also gave him money to get it going. And this morning he sent me a resignation letter saying, Steve, I've got to resign because I'm going to pursue this full time. And actually brilliant. I mean, he's a senior guy, he's a principal, one below partner. He's got a career here, but he wants to go do this entrepreneurial thing. And that's fantastic. And we've got an investment in that business. And I hope he makes a fantastic success of it because there'll be an economic opportunity. But that's great because when he was our consultant, when he went into our clients, he had that entrepreneurial edge to every engagement he had with our clients, right? He was yeah. thinking about what's the real economic issue here? What am I really trying to solve for? And not some theoretical, uh, mathematical, academic viewpoint. He's trying to find the practical MSH view of the world, right? Um, because entrepreneurs have to just get on with it and, and deliver, yeah. you know? So I want to come back to the, the entrepreneurial side, because I, I think there's going to be a fascinating insight around how you do employ people but cultivate that entrepreneurial mindset because like you say there it's a spectrum but there is a, a potential dichotomy there i want to turn back to yourself because my understanding is actually you were in a very similar 
place when you went out to start one of your startups. Mm-hmm. Now, for my listeners' benefit, you, you started three businesses, I believe, prior to starting Elixir. Sure. You know, what was going through your mind? Because I'm sure there's some listeners who may be in that same position. You know, they, they're almost a partner. They've almost climbed to the top of the mountain, as mm-hmm. they see it. But they've got that idea. Mm. What was that for you? How how was that for well, you? It is interesting, you know. I I um I've always wanted to build a business because I see it as a I don't know. It's just something that I've always had the desire to do, and I was always looking for that invention that I could build my business around. You know, I said I wasn't an inventor, um. So I guess I experimented along the way. But I want to just put some say something before I, I I explain the three businesses I started. I used consulting because for me the most entrepreneurial thing you can do in corporate life is consulting. Being a partner in a consulting firm is the most entrepreneurial position in corporate life because you are accountable for your own revenue and your own costs and you have to show profit. And it's very real. It's very visceral. It becomes less and less so the bigger the consultancy because, you know, in a KPMG or an Accenture or a PwC or whatever, you know, the numbers are so diluted if one partner's not doing so well, it's not really noticed. But in smaller partnerships, you certainly own the issue. If you're not if you're not delivering value and you're not being paid, you don't make any money. It's as simple as that, right? And um, so that is the most entrepreneurial thing. So I've always used consulting as the way to sort of satisfy that itch, if you like, that I wanted to have that accountability. But ultimately, I wanted to build something of of substance outside of necessarily consulting. That was my initial um, ambition. So my first attempt at this was uh, around 2000 and. I don't know if you if you old enough, Nick, to remember, but um, <laughs> two thousand was the internet bubble, right? I, I, I believe it was. I believe it. I believe it was. <laughs> yeah, it's when everyone thought the high street was dead, and there'd be no shops on the high street. Everyone would buy everything. So, sort internet. of like where we are now, <laughs> quite with Bitcoin and a few other things. Yeah, um, every currency is about to die, right? Um, the same thing happened in two thousand, and we had this huge momentum around yeah. um, internet businesses, a lot of funding. And I thought I was a senior manager at the time at KPMG in London here. And, um, you know, like anybody, it's a big decision then at that point in your career. You've, you've invested a lot in building yourself to that point. I thought I was on partner track. It depends who you speak to. So I was, uh, that was my ambition while I was in consulting. And it, rightly so, it should be my ambition. But I thought I'd just have to give this a go. I've always wanted to do this. So I, I started a company with six other guys. I was 30 at the time. My son was six months old. I just bought a house in Surrey for 140K, I think. And I raised the mortgage to 240,000 because you could do that back then, even though the equity wasn't in the house. We all put 100,000 in the middle of the table and. Um, 100,000 each. Yeah, six yeah. of us, 100,000 each. And uh, we resigned and uh, went after it for 12 months. And my wife thought I was mad. <laughs> but I said to her, I just had this is a niche I've got to scratch. I've got to have a go at this. Um, but you know, it is interesting because I encourage anybody to have a go, like you, you've had a go. But there is something, there needs to be a bit of realism in it too. You know, the, the idea we had wasn't a bad idea, but it wasn't a brilliant one. It's not the reason the business didn't succeed. The business did not succeed and failed, and I lost all my money. I lie. We sold out, I think I got five grand back. So for 100,000 down, I got five grand back, which is <laughs> better, not one of, better than nothing, I guess. Well, not one of my best investments. No. <laughs> Let's say. But, but still, you know, it's one of those, those things that is a massive learning experience because I learned a lot out of that. I learned. A, the first thing and probably the most valuable lesson is consensus is no way to run a business. I mean, we all live in a, a democracy and we, we like to feel we all have a voice. 
But actually in business, someone has to make a call. It's a bit like if you've played sport in teams, you listen to everyone, but as a captain of a team, you've got to call the play. You know, you can't have everybody deciding how to play. Yeah. You know, someone has to make the call. And the problem we had in that business, if I'm honest, was that we all had equal stakes and we all had one board seat. And therefore, we found the lowest common denominator as opposed to the best answer. The lowest common denominator is the is satisficing, right? It's It's just not the best answer. So... I vowed never to do that again. So what it cost me, that MBA cost me a hundred thousand pounds. Um, but it was a good lesson. Yeah. You know, you know, I took that forward and and you know, I accept that if I'm in a hierarchy or if I'm setting up a hierarchy, it needs to be this way because someone has to make the call. And it's a great lesson and I, I'll take it with me. There are lots of other lessons in there, but that was I think the most material one that came out of that for me. I'm really interested now that you are where you are with Elixir, mm. how do you balance that like you say you, your view is you always need one person to make the call how, mm. how do you balance that with sort of the other end of the spectrum i feel our conversation will be all about spectrums you know mm. one end you've got like you say six people around the table everyone has to be satisfied and you get a lowest common denominator mm. the other end some might say you get a, an autocracy mm. how do you balance that so that like you say you have that definitive view mm. but others are still able to input and provide that insight so that it doesn't just become that one person's view yeah, I mean, it is, it's tricky, right? I mean, I think I use metaphors a lot, right? And I use sporting analogies because I love my sport. But yeah. um, I think there's a lot we can learn from sport as uh, well, well, so well, I agree. Absolutely, and that's why I encourage everyone to play team sports because I think I can't win a rugby match on my own, but I do accept that someone has to be the captain in the on the field. And, and you get good captains and you get bad captains, right? Yeah. Good coaches and bad coaches. And the good ones are the ones that listen the ones that understand, the ones that genuinely try to find the best answer. It really comes down to the leadership at the end of the day. If you're the type of leader that wants to be an autocrat and wants, you, wants to have the power of making decisions and believes that your decisions are always the best ones, then you'll make a very poor leader in, the, in an environment where you're expecting people to present their views and you're trying to find and make genuinely the best decision. You know, I think, unfortunately, the way corporate life is often structured is that it's not structured in such a way that people genuinely get a, a transparent view of the truth. Um, hence, they hire consultants. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and so what ends up happening is that you get suboptimal decision-making. I, I think yeah. what I've tried to build in Elixir anyway, certainly as the outcome of that lesson, if you, if you like, in this business, is it's a true partnership. You know, we're all partners. We all share in the profit of the firm. We have our partners meetings. We have full and frank conversations, but it's Chatham House rules, right? So yeah. anybody can have an opinion in the room, but when we decide, we walk out with one voice. And that means if you disagree, you bet you get your chance to have your say. And if you can't convince, then we walk out with a view that's different to yours and you have that view too. But if you do that fairly and you do that pragmatically and you don't do that with ego and, and ulterior motive and... Yeah, all the, the negative emotions that can go with being a, a dictator, if you like, yeah. then then I think you get the best out of people because we've all played sport with good captains and that's what they do, right? They they find a way when they need to, they're tough, but they find a way to get the best decision and, and make people feel like it's they're participating in it. And But at the end of the day, when the chips are down, someone has to say, right, we're going that way, you yeah. know, and that's just the truth of the matter. So it's almost like a benign dictatorship, right? Yeah. <laughs> you and, I mean, to, you know, as a, a rugby and sports fan as well, you know, you yeah. can you can see where it, the England rugby team's gone through yeah. changes along those sort of lines. Yeah. Um, hopefully we'll, we'll win the Six Nations, but this, I think, will come yeah. out just after, so we'll, we'll wait and see. <laughs> well, you, you, it's interesting, just to, on that point, I mean, you take, I'm a South African, so I find this hard to say, but you look at the best <laughs> rugby team in the world, right? 
New Zealand, right? And what does Richie McCaw do when he was captain? He sweeps the change rooms out at the end of the day. You know, I mean, great leader. No one would ever question his leadership on the rugby field, but he's humble enough in the environment of being in the team to be one of the team. And I think that's actually the essence of it. There's a reason that team is so good that don't have as many registered rugby players as England or South Africa yeah. or Australia, and yet they're consistently the best team in the world. And there's a reason, because they know how to get the best out of a team, but with also having clear leadership, clear direction, and the ability to make decisions, you know. So, Definitely. Yeah. And uh, I think that point, like you say, that not having an ego, being mm. one of the team, being there, like you say, being humble enough to get stuck in when you need to, yeah. but being able to, I guess, transition between the decision-making down to sweeping the floors yeah. is obviously a key factor for them and you know, it sounds like it is for you here. Yeah. So, so I want to bring us apologies. I interrupted. You were telling us the lessons from your yes, startup. Yes, so sorry so. me. I'm jumping around. No, no. Yeah. It's, uh, as I said, yeah. we would. Um, yeah. So please. Sure. So yeah, so that was a failure after 12 months and again, I packed it in, got five grand back after a few years. I basically ran out of money. So I had to go cap in hand back to the city, started working at IBM. Spent uh, four, four and a half years in IBM. While I was there, I thought, let me go back to basics. I thought, I, I haven't, I'm not finished with this entrepreneurial thing. So I thought I'd go back to basics. And the fundamentals of business is buy low, sell high. So I thought, well, where can I buy low and where can I sell high? And being from Africa, I thought I can buy low in Africa and sell high in Europe slash Western world. And so I thought I'd use the internet to sell African art on uh, the European slash Western world stage. So I started this business up. I had my father-in-law helping me down in South Africa source the art. And I was sort of selling it out here on the internet. But, um, you know, that unfortunately, that market is very narrow, very small. It's It got to turning over a little bit of business. But I did this in the side in the evenings. Yeah. I didn't actually resign. So I couldn't afford to. So I did it on the side. But it was only ever going to be a lifestyle business. It was never going to be something that could really scale because the market just genuinely isn't big enough. At least at that time, it wasn't. And and I'm not a person who loved African art per se. I mean, I'd love art, but not in the way that I wanted to make my life, if yeah. you know what I mean. So it was never going to be something that would be a passion business either. So I kind of let that one dwindle, at least die on the vine, if you like. Then I, I went across to Accenture. And while I was in Accenture, I spent a lot of time on aircraft because I was flying out to the States a lot, doing a lot of work out in the US. And that success our flight transatlantic I, I try to use productively so I then I've always been interested in technology and I got my hands on a keyboard and decided to code up a trading system and I wrote a trading system put 50,000 of my own money into it I think at the time and traded it up to half a million and I was just about to kind of pull the trigger on let's get third-party money in and let's start really use building a hedge fund when that sorry when you say traded up you were you were investing your half a million in yeah, I had, stocks and shares. Sorry, yeah. your your fifty thousand into stocks and shares. Yes, that's correct. So, okay. this, uh, systems trading. So, it essentially, was algorithmic trading. So, uh, so it wasn't that yours was a system a trader would use. Your system helped you trade. To it just get... it traded automatic trading. So, in essence, I buy and sell signals that were automatically traded in the marketplace, and it was based on uh, back testing. And and yeah. I mean, if you know much about this, is it was a momentum based system, right? Okay. And I did all the back testing, and it looked like it showed 40% returns over the last 20 years, blah, blah, blah. So I started trading my own money worth it and got 50000 to half a million in about nine months or so. Wow. And I thought, um, this looks like a winner, so let me see if I can try raise some third-party money and make this into a, into a business. And literally, two months later, my half a million was down to zero. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, another life's lesson in that. So the lesson out of that for me was um, – you got to do what you're good at, you know. Mm. Yes, I can code, 
yes, I can understand the market uh, forces, but actually when you're trading with technology, you're not thinking market forces. You only It's technical trading, so it's really trading of price action, which doesn't actually take into account any of the market fundamentals at all. So maybe I should stick to what I was good at. So after spending five years in Accenture having those three failures, I suddenly realized I've been with KPMG, IBM, and Accenture now, and great brands, great businesses, and I would never knock those businesses. They are simply stellar businesses. But still, I think they've lost the spirit of consulting, the the ethos of advisory type business. And I thought, well, this is something I can recreate. This is something I think I can build. I know this industry really well. I've done it in on and off in amongst my other ventures for quite some time. So why don't I build a business that looks and feels like I think consulting should be? Yeah. Hence, Q Elixir. So, you know, we're now nine years in and here we are. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. And I, I'm really curious because it's something previous guests have talked about when they're going off to start their ventures. And similar to you, had families, had children, had properties that they were paying for. Now, mm. I have conversations at the coffee machine with people at work or, you know, over a beer with friends. Some people, you, you'll just get the theme that I have this great idea, but because of all of the things you've just said, I... It's not right for me. I, I can't go out and start my own business. Time is not right. should have done it when I was 25. Mm. What were the conversations you had with, with your wife at each one of these junctures? Mm. And or what advice would you give to other people in that position? I've got a great wife because she really understands um, me as a person, right? I mean, at the end of the day, she knows unless I pursue what I, my dreams, I'm going to be inherently unhappy. So I think, obviously, relationships are all about compromise and we all need to compromise on things occasionally to be able to make a successful success of your relationships. But I think uh, what, what Sue recognized was that um, for me, it was like caging a lion, if you like. I, I, maybe I'm making that a bit grandiose, but I don't wish to kind of big myself up to be a lion or anything. I just, what I really mean by that is like you, you can only contain people for so long before they start becoming unhappy. You know? yeah. And you have to follow your passions. And I think you need to be in relationships actually that allow you to follow your passion. So I, I, I must be honest, this is a bit of a harsh thing to say, but I find it really difficult when people say to me that they want to do something, but the other half won't let them do that. You know, yeah. I, I think that to me sounds, I, I would never not let my wife do something. You know, if she really feels passionate about something, I will do my damnedest to try and help her do that. I, I, I think that I, I don't wish to give people relationship advice, but, but, um, that's at least how I, I view it. Yeah. And that's not to say everybody has the same formula, but but at least that's how I view it. So whenever I wanted to do something, it was quite an easy conversation because Sue's always been very supportive and she trusted me to to do my best. And it's kind of how I brought my kids up too. You know, the only thing you can do is your best, actually. Yeah. The results will be the results. But if you play to win and you do your best, that's all anyone can do. And that's what I've always done. And... I think the people around me kind of go along for the ride. Sometimes we <laughs> win and sometimes we lose, you know. Um, but yeah, I think that's really it. I think you you just have to go after it, you know. Um, I, I do think that it can be easy to make excuses. Yeah. You know, I think at the end of the day, you, if you really want to do something, you'll do it. And it's a bit like um, the guy I was mentioning earlier, uh, Sanjeev has just gone off to do Weibo. When he told me he had taken 50 grand of his own money, and he, he came and asked me to invest in his business. And when I heard that, I said, as I know the guy, because he's worked for me for maybe six years now, I said, absolutely, I'm behind this. I don't actually care what the idea is. If you put your own money in it and you're that committed to it, I'm behind you. You know, because he, he stopped making excuses for himself. You know, he went out there and said, right, this is a dream. 
he's had, he's he's had a lot of illness in his family due to um, physical issues, and and he wanted to do something that had a physical impact, help the well being of society, but obviously also help also made money. So, you know, it had a a very personal angle to it, but also an economic angle. And I thought, yeah. good on you, Sanjeev. I'm right behind you. You know, and let's hope it's a success. You know, I mean, it may not be, but. The guy's got the passion. He's got a great idea, and we'll support him as far as it goes. But I, I would just say to people, you got to have a go. You must scratch that edge because you you only get one shot at life. Yeah, you know, there's no second chances. And and we all know that person who sits in the corner of the office says, "I I had the idea for Facebook. I had the yeah. idea for Uber." And you know, like you started, it's about the execution more than the idea. You know, there's. Lots of people right. have great ideas, but it's the execution that that gets them there. I mean, Google wasn't the first search engine. No, no. AltaVista was. The point is, you know, often people think, you know, like my kids think Google is the only thing that ever existed, <laughs> you know, because they millennials, they are born in 2000. My, my son and my daughter's 2002. So they've only known Google. Yeah. So they think, you know, the guy who created Google is a genius. He is a genius, no question. But there were other search engines and yeah. he got in later, but he got in better. That's the interesting thing. No, I, I, I'd agree so. And I, I think we will continue to and could talk for a long time around the entrepreneurial side. And mm. actually to bring it back to Elixir, I know one of your your key tenants in building Elixir was, like you said, to build a, build a firm of entrepreneurs and mm. bring that entrepreneurial mindset to your clients. Mm. I'm really interested to understand how you how you do that and for for my listeners you know if they are working in a firm and they're an employee I know you've written a lot on this mm. how can they start to incorporate that entrepreneurial mindset even if they don't want to go and do their own venture even if they're very happy in inside sure. a firm yeah i mean that, that's what i say i mean at the start of this conversation we said you can to talk about an issue you sometimes have to talk about the two polars to make yeah. the point like always there's 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 various permutations in the middle I mean, and there are characteristics that employees have that is different to entrepreneurs, but they aren't mutually exclusive and no, nobody has all of one and none of the other and, and vice versa. So I think that it's just degrees, right? And, you know, I'll find people in, I've got a hundred people here now who some of them are out and out entrepreneurs. You know, they are wanting to take a risk all the time, wanting to put their own livelihoods at, at risk in terms of economic livelihoods, if you like. And others of them aren't so risky but they have a lot of the entrepreneurial characteristics and they can display those in, in the way they engage and the way they operate. I think what I would advise people to do is you've got to find an environment that allows you, that encourages you to explore the entrepreneurial energy you have. It may not mean that you need to start your own business or ever start your own business, but there are entrepreneurial characteristics that you should be able to display, utilize, explore, and and your environment should encourage that. You and know? what just as an example, what are some of those characteristics people should? I know you. I, I will link to your blog on this because I think there's a. I know there's a guide there. But yeah, there is. Yeah, you know, it's it's things like I, I guess the most important one is the the ability to take risk on something economically, and that's the one I guess that's the hardest to say to actually do if you're in in, in an employment role. But you can certainly explore those concepts in engaging in the business. So the kind of thing I would think as an example is if you're in a corporate, for example, and you, you're you looking at a business opportunity, instead of building a business case that looks good, build a business case that you would invest in. Do you know what I mean? It's, yeah, yeah. it's simple but significant mindset shift to the way you approach the problem. I mean, often I see things done, which I say to someone, would you put your own money in this? 
Never. <laughs> Why have you built a business case that looks good then? You know, I mean, is it a good business case or not? You know what I mean? Yeah. I mean, it's just a simple thing like that that, that gives you much more satisfaction in what you're doing, in that you look at it and you go, yes, I would put my own money. In Going this. beyond ticking the boxes, I guess, isn't it? Correct. It's just, often it's just a way of, it's a mindset. It's it's having a posture that says, I'm going to behave like, I'm an employee, yes, but I'm, I'm not going to look for political angles to get promoted. I'm going to look for market angles to get promoted, you know? So I don't, the market doesn't promote me. Elixir either is a success or it's not a success. It's binary, right? Either the, the market's a cruel place. It'll say, it's cruel, but it's fair. If you are valuable, we'll pay for you. If you're not valuable, we won't pay for you. So instead of walking into your boss's office and saying, can I have a 10% raise? Just deliver something that delivers 50% value. You know, I mean, think like that. Don't think about how much pay do I take, but how much value do I create? Because you've started a business and you realize quickly that if the market's not there, no matter how hard you work, you can't turn around to your boss and say, but I worked hard. Yeah, you definitely. Know? The market doesn't pay you for working hard. It pays you for results. You know, so I think it's just approaching the problem with a, a more economic mindset, with a more, more appreciation of what it really takes to be successful. And I think you'll go so much further. Just that mindset shift, people, even in, who stay in employment all their lives, will be so much more successful. Yeah, I mean, there's, as I say, there's loads of these kind of things that we could talk about, but those are two little examples. That I yeah, and I, I think that, again, that is obviously a, a really big one. Like you say, don't don't focus on the political angle. Mm. Focus on actually growing business. And just from my short career and the people I've seen, I always get the feeling that the growing politically can, can only take you so far. Eventually, mm. you know, like you said, especially in a consulting and a partnership model, once you are a partner, there's only so much politics can save you there's cold hard numbers and if you aren't hitting those you you know you're, you're out so i i think that's a, a really good bit of advice yeah, uh, i mean i tried to do this uh, nick in my business because i i realized i i've promoted a few partners in elixir and they're great people you know i mean i i would never promote someone who i didn't think was a magnificent talent and had the potential but what i discovered if you become a partner in my firm you go from having 100% certainty on your salary every month to 0% certainty on your income every month. And that's a very big swing, right? Because the simple truth is, if we don't make profit, we don't pay partners. So your yeah. your partnership is, and we, we won't go too much into the technical side, but it's simply, it's it's the profit. There's no salary component. It's just yeah. eat what you kill. But, but isn't that what a profit partnership is? I mean, that's what business is, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you are a business owner... You can't pay yourself if there's no money to pay yourself. <laughs> it's just a zero-sum game, right? I mean, you have to pay everyone else, and then you pay yourself. That's what a partnership is. Why I said to you, I think the most entrepreneurial industry in corporate life is consulting partnerships because you are as close as you can possibly be to that truth, you know, that re realization that if you don't create economic value in the market, you can't afford to pay yourself. And I found that a really hard thing for people to to kind of appreciate. You know, the words are easy, but the realism of you're sitting at home and you suddenly haven't got paid for a month and you've got a mortgage to pay. Oh, my God, what, what what's happened here? Um, are there any common challenges that you do see with people making that that step? Yeah, I think that is the biggest one, if I'm honest with you. I think certainly in my experience with Elixir is the biggest one. I think it's less of an issue in the big partnerships because, you know, take Accenture. It's not really a partnership anymore. It's a company, right? And people get paid, you know, yeah. come what may almost, right? Um, whereas I think if you go to the smaller firms, 
that are running proper partnerships, I think that realization is a little bit more true. So again, it needs to be tempered for which environment you're in. Um, I think if you're in a KPMG, even though it's a true partnership, I think it's less of an issue because there's so much volume. Strength of numbers, yeah. 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 So so it's 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 it is the biggest issue I certainly see for my firm. But it's it's something I celebrate actually because I feel it is it brings that realism that entrepreneurial realism to the situation. You know, I can honestly say that each of my partners truly get what it means to run a business. And I'm interested in something I read that you've actually you've taken that model further down your firm. So I understand with some, I believe, sort of the senior leadership below. But you you can elaborate. Mm. You you've said to them, look, guys. We'll give you some of the upside, but you've got to take some of the risk with us. Yeah, so it is all in an effort to try and encourage ownership of Elixir by everybody. So the trouble with um, where we are with a partnership is that it is a partnership and only the, the partners are the owners. So you can't have share option schemes for employees and things like that. But at the same time, I also wanted to encourage people to see the value in helping Elixir be successful, because I think the team, the more the team participates in the success of the firm, the better everyone else, the whole firm will be. And so what we try to do is for all our outstanding performers, plus our principal team, which is one below partner. So all our principals are invited into the scheme and everyone who's outstanding. So all our top performers. And that could be any grade, any grade. from analyst upwards. Yeah. So we give them the option. It's not mandatory, but they can sacrifice 20% of their salary in the profit of the firm. So what we say is if you put 20% up, so let's say someone's earning 100 and they put 20 up, right? And we have a budget which says we will, as a firm, make, let's say, 1,000, right? If we make that 1,000, you will get 1.5 times your investment back, right? So if you put 20 up, you get 30 back, right? If we make if we and then everything goes up exponentially based on the profit figure. So if the thousand becomes one thousand two hundred, you share in the extra two hundred exponentially, right? So I think last year we did the scheme and our guys got something like four times return on their money. Wow. Um, so yeah, I mean those who were in had a yeah. good a good time, right? Actually, no, it wasn't four times. I think it was two point two times, if I if I remember something like that. I can get you the correct numbers. But point is, it was in twelve months. Where can you take? at an investment and get that kind of return where you have an active role in making the value real. And so that's what I was trying to create the connection between was, you know, I believe every one of the people in my firm make a difference to the profitability of this firm because every single one of them every day is engaging with clients and either creating value or destroying value. And they can either take on the role of creating value or the, the, the reverse. And if they have their own personal wealth at stake, you know, or their personal returns on investments they've made at stake, it's, it focuses the mind a bit more. So that's what I was trying to achieve. And I think a lot of people like it. I mean, it was interesting. A few people were skeptical, didn't want to come in. But after the first year, it's amazing. We've had a lot more uptake. <laughs> well, funny funny <laughs> yeah. that, hey. But, but you see, here's the thing, right? If we have a bad year, you suffer the consequences too. You know, if we don't make the 1,000, let's say we make 500, you only get 10 of your 20 back. So yeah. there's the, the, the opposite downside. downside, yeah. It's business, right? Risk-reward, right? Yeah. If you're going to take risk, you must be prepared to lose it. So I say to them all, I say, do not put it up if you can't live without the 20%, right? You must be able to live without it, right? But it sounds like it's delivered the, the benefit you hope for. I mean, the, it sounds like the response has been positive and from oh, yeah, those massively. who've been involved. Massively. And I also think it makes it very real. You know, people start really getting a sense of the authenticity of business, you know, what makes it real for them. So 
yeah, I mean, I think it's been very positive. That's obviously the financial side, and that's worked very well. And yeah. a lot of the conversations that people have around business, startups, etc., especially in call now a tech bubble or whatever you want to call it, but they're all very financially focused. Mm. I'm quite interested, is actually in something that I saw you posted on LinkedIn, and apologies if I've, I've misquoted it, but mm. it, it was along the lines of the challenge, purpose, and people that you work with matter. Mm. Title, money, power, right organization doesn't. Mm. I, I, I think that's a really interesting realization. I'd just be keen to understand what really led you to sort of have that realization and what impact has that had for you? Ah, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, it's quite a philosophical point that, right? So um, I can say this fairly controversially, or I can say it... Um, be controversial. <laughs> yeah, no, okay, so I, I let me be make it personal and controversial. So if I look at my children, I often accuse them of being spoiled rich kids, okay? You know, they're lucky because, you know, their dad has been re reasonably successful, so they live in a nice house, they go to nice schools, and, you know, they live in their little bubbles, and they don't really understand the hardship of life, you know? And... Also, what that cultivates is it cultivates, they're told by their mom and dad that they're wonderful and they go to nice schools and they do reasonably well and they're going to go off to university and they start believing the stuff that they're wonderful and that life is actually quite easy. It's actually not that easy. You know, when you hit the real world, it's hard. Simon Sinek, right? I mean, you, yeah. you must have watched his YouTube video on this stuff where he says that millennials, they, they expect things to, to come to them. And when they realize that the world doesn't work like that, they get very disillusioned. And it's, I think it's part of the problem in that it's a reward culture. Instead of looking for what fulfills me, I don't know why, but I think, you know, I'm an only child and my mom brought me up in a, in a small house in Cape Town. She went out and worked. I saw her working hard to put food on the table for us. And it just made me realize that I've got to do something and I can't focus on the money. I can't focus on I've done something, I need reward. I've got to focus on creating value. I've got to focus on a purpose, a reason for being. There must be a mission I'm on. And it seems to have worked for me. And I, I think if I reflect on my career, I think when I look at, say, certainly my kids, not to, to, as I said, to make it personal, I try and encourage them to focus on things that give meaning to their lives. Stop worrying about what you're going to get paid. Stop worrying about, you know, titles. Don't worry about who looks good to whom, right? That's all nonsense. And that's the politics, politics stuff, right? J just get on with doing stuff that you really feel you can add value to because you will make a difference in that and you will feel good about being yourself and you will make, you, you will probably end up making money. Money should be a byproduct. It shouldn't be the purpose. If you go into a job saying, what stimulated that debate was I see on LinkedIn all the time these things, negotiate the best job offer. And it's always about get 10% more in your base pay, you know, type of angle. It's all nonsense, you know, particularly people on LinkedIn. None of those people are really underpaid. If they are, they're underpaid by 5, 10, 15%, right? And you see a lot of people jumping jobs because they're 5, 10, 15% underpaid. But they go to a job they hate, you know, don't do that. Don't do that, right? Don't worry about the money. Just do stuff you're good at because it'll it'll ultimately pay dividends. Think about your career as the next 30 years. It's not tomorrow or the next year. You've got to do something that that you feel good about. And and to anyway, that was what stimulated that. I was, you know, frustrated in seeing people job hopping for what is really very short-term thinking. 
I don't know if this is something you've more advice for your your kids, and this probably is a more philosophical one, but I think stems largely from from that, you know, the, the challenge, purpose, and people point. I think people is sort of quite an easy, well, potentially easy one you can assess through, you know, speaking with teams and. I actually do want to come on to that because I think as someone who who uses sports metaphors as well, you might have interesting takes on that. But mm. if some of my listeners are, let's say, they've come out of university, they've done you know that traditional route, they've gone to school, gone to university, went to a grad scheme, joined a consultancy, mm. are there any sort of questions or things that maybe you read or you, you suggest to your children or colleagues here to, to really help them start to understand that purpose and what, what does drive them beyond, you know, the sort of... I earn a hundred grand. I earn fifty grand. Whatever it is, you know, beyond that financial side, I, I'd just be genuinely curious on that. I don't know. I think I'm not sure I have the million dollar answer on this one. If I'm honest with you, I think that it it's a deeply personal thing. I think everybody goes on their own journey, and each journey is different. No, I, I just don't think I can say that there's one magic source here. I think that you need to find. Like I don't know. Let me take if I, if my son asked me that question, now, I'd say to him. His name's James, by the way. I'd say, you know, James, what are the things that make you happy? When you when do you find you the most happy in life? What are the things that interest you? What types of people do you like being around? That's where you'll find your inspiration. But it's not going to come from a pithy one-liner that I'm going to give you. You know, it's going to come from hard work where you sit down and think about what is the things that, that really motivate me? And I think that's if my daughter asked me that question, I'd say the same thing, you know, and, and, and often it's very different things. You might find it starts out over here and ends up over there because, you know, often you pursue a passion. When you start working in that passion, it's not as sexy as you thought it was. Yeah. And so you move into something else, right? So I think being flexible with it as well, but as long as you're pursuing it, you know, yeah. I think the important thing is to have the pursuit of it and put yourself in an environment that allows you to pursue it. You don't have to put your finger on it day one. <laughs> I think that's actually the, the important point is life's a journey, not a destination. Yeah. You know? um, and you go on a journey with an objective, you know, and my objective is to find my purpose. My objective is to find fulfillment. My objective is to be happy. And as long as you have the journey, along that journey, you pursue those ambitions. And if you find yourself distracted, you will be. I mean, I, we've all been there. I talk like I've got all the answers here, but I don't, right? I've I've sometimes been swayed by money, right? And I've realized those decisions were the bad ones. The good decisions were always when I said, I'm going after doing something that I really feel passionate about with people that I really believe in. Those are the things that tend to work out better. So yeah, I mean, that would be my advice, actually. Yeah. And I think I think it's a very fair point. And you're not the first guest, actually, to say something along those lines. One of, one of my previous guests, Don Morehouse, mm. he made the point that people often spend longer planning their summer holidays than they do planning their lives. And mm. I, I think largely talks to the point you're saying that people don't take that time to sit down and you know ask the questions that you would have put to your son, to James, to say, mm. well, what do I enjoy? What type of people? And just get, especially, I think, in consulting, where it's, it's quite a full-on job, get carried away with delivery, internal work, and 50, 50 plus hours is gone and you're, you're back again. Mm. You haven't taken that time. So no, I think that's a, a really fair point and really useful. I would also say, if I look at, I'm now a person who buys people. I mean, that's what I do. I, I hire people, i.e. buy them to work in my firm and eventually become part of my firm so that it becomes their firm. But the one thing that I've realized in that process actually now is, you know, intelligence isn't a differentiator. 
because actually intelligence is abundant in a city like London, a city yeah. like New York, like Tokyo, like name big cities. There's lots of intelligent people, right? What I end up being more interested in when I hire people is passion, motivation, dedication, loyalty, teamwork. You know, these aren't things that are on any IQ score. These are things that are about character, you know? So I think if, if, if young people want to get ahead, consulting or industry, I, I think this is true. Entrepreneurial energy, I have that positive mindset towards, would I invest in this myself? But also stop being fixated on the fact that you're clever because there's lots of clever people. And don't try and sell your cleverness because actually it's, it's not the differentiator. You know, the differentiator is all those other things, the passion, motivation, the dedication, all of those things that I mentioned. And I think that makes a massive difference. That's kind of what I would advise my children to do and hopefully... Focus on those elements and yeah. obviously the, the intelligence is something, <laughs> but it's needed. But like you say, yeah. there's, there's a lot of people with good sure. degrees from good universities. It's, sure. um, it's funny, I, I read a book by a chap called Paul Oberschneider, mm. um, it's called Don't Sell Tacos in Africa, just so the, the African reference. Um, right. But he made ex he, he almost made that same point, that you can buy the 10,000 hours of mastery, hmm. but you can't buy a lot of the skills you just talked about. I, I want to come back to... There's one other point on that. Oh, please. Because the, the one thing about youth is that they don't actually always value experience. You know, and there's a, there's a saying, right? There's a, I, I read this in a book, I can't remember the what the book's title was, so I can't credit it, but I'm going I'm to I'm I'm share it with you anyway. On this point about experience, you know, this guy's, um, this guy's got a creek and his stairs in his home, so he gets in a few carpenters to come and sort out the creek in the stairs, and no one can fix this creek. Eventually, someone says, you've got to talk to this guy. He's got lots of experience, right? So this guy comes in, walks up and down the stairs a few times, walks over to the third step, taps on the left-hand side, and the creek's gone. And the guy says, that's amazing. I've had like five other guys in here that couldn't get rid of this creek and you've done it in like five minutes. He says, what do I owe you? So he writes out a, an invoice for $1,000, 1,000 pounds. And the guy goes, 1,000 pounds, you're here for five minutes. And he said, all right, do you want me to itemize it for you? And he says, please, yes. So he says, right, five minutes of time, $10. Knowing where to hammer, $990, <laughs> you know? And that's experience, right? Yeah, Definitely. You know, sometimes there's there's things that you know because he's been a carpenter for years. He kind of knows, right? I always found that quite an interesting story because there's a lot in life you can learn from that, I think, is this idea of, you know, sometimes people with experience have value that you just can't appreciate until you've done it yourself, you know. You know no, so no, I, have some humility too, I think, is an important thing I, amongst I, those characteristics. I think it's a really good good characteristic. And again, I, I think one of the challenges, you know, you, you talked about LinkedIn before, and I think just social media in general is it, it celebrates the, you know, the exceptions who, mm. the Mark Zuckerbergs who are 24, 25, Absolutely. and have created these things. Mm. When actually they still very much are the exceptions. Totally. But it gives that skewed view that every 22-year-old can invent and then entrepreneur. Hmm. And that's simply not the case for the vast majority of people. Yeah. I would say on that, Nick, though, that um, what that is is great aspirational food. The fact that Mark Zuckerberg has done what Mark Zuckerberg has done is magnificent and hugely inspirational. And lots of people should continue to take inspiration from that. But to think that everybody can do that, don't be naive, right? Yeah, man, I think there's a subtlety to the inspiration. And I think that's your point is that it's fantastic that we have these role models. But at the same time, you know, the guy that chops wood in Africa is also inspirational in his own way or her own way. And, and you've got to take it in perspective. You know, entrepreneurship can take any form. Inspiration, yes, that's a nice thing to aspire to achieve. 
but start your journey. You know, yeah. what I mean? <laughs> you know, every marathon starts with the first step. You know, uh, don't try jump to the finish line. You know? Yeah, no, some com- people completely. Can, I completely agree with you, and like you say, it's the it definitely is. It's the inspiration, and mm-hmm. like you say, temper that by understanding where you are and yeah. the humility to understand your capabilities and skills sure. you know it, it's the sports metaphor isn't it mark zuckerberg is an international standard player mm. you know if you're a sunday league uh, rugby One player as i'm afraid you know firmly in rugby i am sort of sunday at best it's uh, yeah. know your know your strengths uh, and you could still have a great career doing that right in that context right yeah and do really well right and and maximize your potential Definitely, definitely right. Yeah. And I want to come back actually to the Elixir journey, and we, sure. we've talked quite a bit about startups. And I know one one strategic element that I think is is quite different for Elixir than some of the other firms of your size that I know is you've grown globally very quickly. Hmm. And I'm interested. I understand Silicon Valley particularly was was quite an interesting growth component for the firm. Can you tell me about a bit more about how you set up that office and what you're doing out there. Yeah, so the philosophy behind this is, again, appealing to this idea of free markets and entrepreneurship. I actually think it's a fallacy that a lot of the other firms tend to sell that we can help you innovate. I think that's wrong because, you know, even the biggest companies in the world, companies like IBM, Accenture, 300,000 people, there's only so many good ideas that can come from 300,000 people. And the structures within those companies actually inhibit the creativity often. Actually, the free market and unlimited capital that is deployed against that free market is where the best ideas are going to come from. And I think having the humility as a corporate to appreciate that is actually the first step in the journey of being truly innovative, right? Because where does this all happen? Okay, the the, the place, when I thought about this, I thought the, the place in the world where this comes together most acutely is in Silicon Valley, where literally, not unlimited capital, but almost unlimited capital chasing unlimited talent, right? And obviously, they're going to produce the best ideas. And they're unencumbered by the bureaucratic structures that the FTSE 100, the Fortune 500 have, right? So if you just, that's a simple fact, right? I mean, and and it's amazing how many people just simply don't appreciate that fact. And that is the genesis of why we did what we did. Because the first thing I wanted to do was to say, well, if that's, if I believe in that, and I believe that to be true. The market's always going to outfeed, out-innovate any one company. The trick, therefore, is not to innovate, but the trick is to understand the innovation that is happening and to be able to dovetail the innovation that's happening with my current issues. And what do we do as consultants? I know most of my clients' current issues, and if I don't know them, I can find them out pretty quickly. If we have a, the best understanding of emerging innovation – then it's pretty easy for us to do that match process. Yeah, definitely. That's step one. That's actually the easy bit, right? Each company can do that themselves. The hard bit, actually, is now embedding that innovation. As a very practical example, I took one group of board members out to Silicon Valley for a client of ours. And, uh, you know, they found this company that they were really interested in. Five-man show. Sure, they've got 10 million of funding, but there's only five people and they're busy coding away. They loved the idea. They wanted to integrate it into their business. Um, So what do they do? They get home, CEO wanders down to the procurement department and says, I want you to get these guys in, right? So what do the procurement department do? Send this little company, the master services agreement for Bank X that has 400,000 employees, right? Can you imagine the, I mean, 300 pages of legal documents land on the desk (laughs) of a five-man company. I mean, this is the kind of friction that happens between 
corporates trying to engage. And it's a very trivial example. And there are thousands of examples along the route. I mean, I just use something like procurement to, to make the point, right? Yeah. They just don't know how to engage. So the real challenge actually is not identifying the innovation. The real challenge is integrating the innovation into your proposition because there's so many hurdles to get through. The the a corporate environment is like a it anything that doesn't come from itself, it's like a immune system in the body. It yeah, just spits attacks it, it and kills yeah. it, right? So you've got to find you, you need an antibody, you need something protecting these these little ideas coming in because it's it's really hard for them to succeed. So that's the philosophy behind our, our vision with Silicon Valley. And frankly, it's been magnificent. For us, it's it's been what's really kickstarted this firm, you know, because um, we, we had a good business before, but it was more operational efficiency focused. And now it's much more about market strategy, much more about front foot, the thing that CEOs are interested in, which is how do we grow our business? You know, I run a FTSE 100. How do I get the next 10% of growth? Yeah. You know, and that's about the top line, not about efficiency. I can't save my way to freedom. I've got to sell my way to freedom. Yeah, right? definitely. And and this is what's really on the fronts of fronts of minds. And and that whole agenda has really helped us do that because we can take whole teams out there. We don't do Google visits. We don't do any of these campus tours. We don't ride bicycles. We don't do any of that stuff. Because to me, that's just tourism. You know, what we're really looking for is we take people directly to startups that meet their issue. Take, um, it's no secret, Standard Bank's a very big client of ours, Africa's biggest bank, right? Micro lending in Africa is emerging as a big issue. Now, Peter Schlebusch, who runs the, he's the chief executive of uh, the retail bank down there. How does he get into that marketplace with a brand as big as Standard Bank in a meaningful way where there's lots of new entrants getting in there? He discovers something in Silicon Valley that gives him an angle where, you know, Experian, the credit, there's no credit. Credit re referencing. Referencing, sorry. Thank yeah. you for the help here. <laughs> I had a bit of a mind blank. Credit referencing uh, facility in, in Africa in the same way that you have in countries like the UK or the US or, or the rest of Europe. And so it's really hard to, to understand how to lend and what are the risks are when you lend. And, and he discovered a, a piece of technology that can really assist them in that. And that's a magnificent opportunity for them. And it just changed the whole mindset of yeah. the engagement with someone like us, right? Is we can help you penetrate a market meaningfully, as opposed to just how do we squeeze the next 1% of costs out of your operational costs, you know? Make no mistake, we do that stuff, but it's always much more interesting to be focused on how do we enter a market? How do we capture a market? And it, it just changes the dynamic. And um, we've, we've found lots of innovation too to make operational efficiency, which mm. is interesting, but, but, but it does give us a very interesting angle. And it wasn't very hard. I went out there with one of my partners, Brandon, uh, who leads our innovation practice for us. And um, literally a week later, we had an apartment out there. He was out there. You know, we engaged with all of the, the VCs, so Sequoia, Lightspeed, Andreessen Horowitz. We have a great relationship with them. So when you think about it, you know, these guys are qualifying. They get over 6,000 applications for investment a year, Yeah, you know, each one of them. And they only invest in three or four or five. Wow. Know? So what's the best qualification process? Where's the smart money going, right? Let's talk to the VCs. What are they investing in? What are they seeing as trends? And what they're really interested in is what are corporates struggling with? Because we want to invest in the things the corporates are struggling with. So there's a mutually beneficial thing here that works really well. So sharing all trade secrets, but that's it. I mean, in a nutshell. So, so Brandon's flat is the uh, is the office. Yeah, <laughs> well, it's moved on from that. We've, yeah. we've rented space out there. I've now got uh, one, two, three, four, four, 
more partners out there now. Oh, so, right. so it really is expanding. Yeah. And yeah. I think the you know the point you highlight around the sort of corporate immune system and mm. how corporates do integrate startups, I think is a is a really live issue. I sometimes greet this with a bit of cynicism, but I do I do think there's an element of corporates almost courting startups in a sort of come and show us your wares, mm. sort of almost just like a warm hug, mm. but without like you said, I sometimes it's simply they just can't they can't comprehend there's a disconnect between what you need to manage a four hundred thousand person firm and what five guys do. And that disconnect causes all of those problems. Nick, there's multiple angles to that, if yeah. I'm honest with you. I mean, with all the best the greatest respect, and often when I hear someone say with the greatest respect, they actually with no respect. <laughs> but I do mean this with, with respect because these corporates are fantastic businesses, but them engaging with startups is a bit like, what do you do? You're a CEO of, let's say, a telecommunication company in the UK, right? And you hear that there's this new startup that does X that can help you with your efficiency of masts. I don't know. You know, I'm not an expert in telecom, so I'm going to just make some stuff up. But you heard that anecdotally. So then you engage with a startup and it so happens that it's marginally interesting, but not that interesting. In the scale of things of what you're dealing with in terms of growing your business, which is a 7 billion turnover business, it's like really on the fringes. But to that startup, this could be the make or break opportunity for them. There's such a disconnect in priorities. Forget the, you know, the operational processes. It's just disconnecting priorities. And that's because of the nature of the engagement. You need structured engagement. You know, you need somebody, and this is why I think our role is so crucial to this. If I can go and talk to a CEO and say, listen, what are the things that are your important buttons? What are the things that are at the top of your list, not side of table issues, th things that are right in the center of your crosshairs that you're trying to nail, right? Let me show you startups that are in the crosshairs because otherwise you're wasting their time and you're wasting your time because there's a higher chance of engaging and you being motivated to engage if I show you something that's in your crosshairs. This isn't an education tour. You can't waste these startups' time, you know, because you've started a business, you know. When you're small, a no is better than a maybe. Definitely. You know, you want a no because at least you can move on to something else. Someone who strings you along is the biggest cost to you, the biggest cost burden when you start. Yeah, especially when they could be that golden ticket, like you say. Exactly. So you want somebody to be very straight with you. And people, they don't want to tell you no. It's, it's I love your idea, but it's like, a 1% idea in my scheme of 100% things that yeah. I'm doing, you know? But if I know it's in your 50% space, then I'm. it's a, a different conversation, right? So I think the, the marriage between the dialogue of corporates and startups, if that's procured properly, structured properly, you get a greater chance of success and everyone's happier because mm -hmm. the, the corporates get something more in their sweet spot and the startups get less time wasting. And also, you through that process, you build understanding. You know, I'm trying to educate boards of the companies that are my clients that you must have some respect for these people. You know, these are people spending their own money to start their own businesses. Okay, they've taken other people's money in. That's because there's, there's something there. But you must respect that. Give them a no. If it's something that's going to be on the side of the desk that you'll only get to in four months time, rather say no, right? And move on. They, they would take that because then you build a healthier relationship because in four months' time, you might get back to them and then you can engage properly, you know? It's just, so it's that whole process which is so crucial. D definitely, and I think the the implicit advice for corporates from what you're saying as well seems to also be not just don't waste startups' time, but understand whether you're in a space that, to your point, 
you need top line or you need bottom line. Correct. You know, is your fifty percent issue cutting cost, mm-hmm. or are you at the point where your you know your ship's in order, everything's mm-hmm. good, and you're now like you say trying to grow? Yeah. Because I think that's the other challenge is sometimes it's there's an element of me too. You know, it's of it's what big data was a few years ago. Everyone jumps in because the next bank or the next bank or whoever it is is jumping in. That's so true, Nick. And I think sometimes we as advisors can be very irresponsible here. You know, because we want to be on the bandwagon too, don't we? You know, so we jump in and we we can also show you startups. You know, <laughs> okay, you know, really, but but think about it. You know, I think the more you curate this stuff the better for everybody. And and if we have a role as a consulting industry, that has to be our role, surely. It has to be applying our minds intelligently, applying our intelligence to the problems of the day and making sure that the chances of success of these marriages are high. You know, sure, they're not all going to work, but you want to increase the probability so that everybody wins. And I think we have a responsibility there. No, I'd, I'd really agree. And I, I think, like you say, there is a, a responsibility. And I, it, it comes back to your fundamental points of the market will decide what the market wants, and you have to deliver that. But like you say, you have to be mindful of what that means for your clients and how you deliver it in the best way for them as well. No worries. So I think that's a really interesting point. I think we've got a lot of really good context on on Elixir and how you, you've set up the firm. Sure. I'm keen to turn a bit to some point advice for for my listeners. So like I, I said at the start, the majority of my listeners are people working in consulting firms, do actually have listeners outside of consulting as well. So I think that that whole piece around innovation would be extremely valuable. Mm-hmm. When you started Elixir, or now you've been running it for the nine years, as you say, is there anything that maybe you thought when you were in-house, when you were a partner uh, about running your own firm that has, I don't know, been completely different now that you're actually r- out there running your own firm? Yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, it's the accountability point. You know, when I was uh, in Accenture, I didn't really own the issue. I felt a responsibility towards it, mm. but I didn't really own it. I feel that um, everything we do has a reputational impact, has a an economic impact. We have to think very carefully about everything. And there's nothing for nothing, you know. I think you can get lazy when you're in a big firm because you forget how valuable that brand is. You, you can start believing, if you like, that your clients are buying you, Steve mm. Newton, as an Accenture partner. They're not really. They're buying Accenture. And that brand has a lot of pulling power. It's, you know, no one ever got fired for buying a hiring iron. I was ju- just about to say that. You know, it's that classic thing, right? Um, whereas in a small firm, you're as good as your next gig. You know, yeah. it's the same as sport, back to our sports analogy. You can, yeah, I'm a Liverpool fan for my, my sins. We can beat City and then lose to West Brom, right? I mean, <laughs> but you're as good as your next your next match, right? And that's how it is. It's, it's, a, it's a, I think that's probably the single biggest thing that I, I think I've experienced between the two is the authenticity of the accountability is just right up there. Whether your value is either there or it's not there. I've had people join us from very good consulting brands, very successful careers. They can't pull it off in this environment because we're still building our brand. And yes, I like to think it's a fantastic brand, but it certainly doesn't, I'll be humble enough to acknowledge it doesn't have the same pulling power as a KPMG does or an Accenture does or a PwC has. It will It will do, <laughs> but we're still on that journey. And that means we have to work harder. We have to be more on our game. I guess. <laughs> and and that point around, you know, people coming into this environment and some succeeding because they, they thrive in it, some, like you say, realizing that it's a very different world to what they came from. 
I think that's a really interesting point. And I would be really interested in what is it for you that actually does separate the best hires you've made from the rest? What is it that your, you know, your, your great guys out there do that your, your top performers, the ones you would, you've brought into the partnership in effect do, that the average performers just, just don't? Yeah, it's a, it's a tough, tough one. So I'll, I'll talk about one of my partners, um, Barry Lewis, who, who joined us about five years ago. Barry had a stellar career in banking, never done a day's consulting in his life. 30 years as global head operations, not all the time global head, but he ended up as global yeah. head operations at Credit Suisse, so a very senior banker. It took him you know, 18 months to find his feature because essentially he'd moved from a back office role in a bank, albeit a very senior back mm. office role, to a very front office role in a consulting outfit that he'd never done before. And it took him a while to come to terms with it. Now, interesting thing about Barry is Barry started as a runner in the city. 16 years old, he used to run tickets around the city. Had a, I mean, it's an amazing story because very stellar career. Right? Yeah. Ended up being global head of operations for Credit Suisse with very humble beginning. No academic, well, obviously he went to school and da-da-da, very clever guy, but didn't see it as an important thing like we do today, that got to get your university qualifications at the right universities, da-da-da-da-da. And, you know, he is one of our best partners now. Simply brilliant partner, very effective in the marketplace, gives such sound advice to clients, very sought after in the marketplace because of it. It's interesting to see someone like that. And I'd, I've often reflected on what makes Barry succeed when I, I don't want to name people that haven't been successful because yeah, that's, that's a bit unfair. But I've seen successful consulting partners in big firms come into this world and not succeed. And what distinguishes them? And I think it comes down to, I don't know, this... I call it a little chip, a little bit of a chip on your shoulder. You know, you've got to have this little bit of grit in you that says, I refuse to fail. This determination to overcome and actually what actually defines successful entrepreneurs, right? Is this grit to say, I refuse to accept, I cannot make this work. I always say to Barry, I tease him, I say, Barry, you're so balanced because you've got a chip on both shoulders. <laughs> <laughs> but he's, I mean, he's a fantastic, fantastic success, great guy. But then I can look at an, another partner um, who I can mention as well, Brandon, because he came from a big consulting background and he's a fantastic partner in this firm. It's just, and, and I, I can't put my finger on it, Nick, but I, I think it comes down to Brandon also had a bit of a, he had to grind things out in his early mm. career. You know, he had to do some hard yards. Nothing really landed in his lap, you know, and he's now, he has, a, he has that grit in him. And so, so winding all the way back to the start of our conversation about what are the, what's the advice I give people starting their careers is there's no harm in having hardship, you know, build those characteristics of determination, loyalty, trust. Those are the things that will actually stand you in good stead when you, when you eventually start fulfilling on your ambitions through your career, because right. it's that, it's that intangible something. It's not intelligence. In actual fact, some of the people that have failed here have been smarter than the guys that are successful here. So, yeah, I mean, it's it's tough. And, and and as with people, businesses, you can never, there's no one silver bullet, is there? No, of course. But I think hopefully that gives some people some insight on on what I think. And I, I think that would be true for any industry, actually, I think, to succeed. Mm. I think there's that the little bit of grittiness that says, I, I'm going to make this work. I'm prepared to do the hard yards. I'm prepared to get my head down. I'm prepared to have humility. I'm prepared to understand that there's things I don't know and that I'm constantly learning, you know, and just to push and make sure that you, you take the knocks as learnings. You yeah. take the failures as 
a learning opportunity, you know. And, and the answer to this one might just be the same. It might be that grit. It might be take things as learning. So for maybe those more junior in the firm, mm. are there any common mistakes that, that you see junior colleagues making that, that hold them back in, mm. that, in, that, in that career journey? Yeah, I think Gordon Gecko, greed is good. Huh? Yeah, I mean, I you you know the, yeah, the yeah. movie. I mean, I in some areas in a capitalist society, greed is good because it motivates people and it incents people. And I I like people when they show greed when it comes to their ambition and their desire to achieve. But patience is also very important. Also, understand the reality of where you are. If you're Ben Woodburn at, at Liverpool, you have fantastic talent but you can't play Premier League football yet. You know, as good as you are, you're not going to play in the first team. Yeah. It doesn't mean you're never going to play in the first team. In fact, it doesn't ever mean that you might not be Lionel Messi, but just do your time because there's things you don't know. And sometimes you don't know what you don't know, as we said earlier. So I think, to me, I think the, the biggest failing actually is, your biggest strength is often your biggest weakness. And I love people with this passion, determination, motivation, greed to succeed. But you have to also put it in context. You have to be able to rein it in and know when you're going too far. And that's a hard skill to build, I think. I think, you know, particularly when you, you're early in your career, you're very impatient. You know, you want to get ahead and you see all these, you maybe see your friends advancing quicker than you. Don't measure yourself by that. You don't measure yourself by that. You know, see your career as 5, 10, 15 years, not as my friend got a promotion last week. I need to get one. That's really a mugs game. It really is a mugs game. See it as a more longer term thing. Don't lose the fire. Keep the fire. Keep the energy. Keep the determination. But yeah, and I think that comes back to you know the, and the theme throughout this, and like you said with the footballing analogy, there. Understand your talents where you could get. Keep that drive, but have that humility and respect mm. the experience. You know, with your carpenter example, to mm. to objectively look at where you should be. You know, should you be in the first team? Should you be in the mm. the second team? Where are you at that point? And the, there's nothing wrong with having the ambition and driving towards it, but don't try and get there and put noses out of joint doing it. Correct, yeah. Fan fantastic. People bu people, businesses, right? It's all about people. And the other thing too is never sour relationships because there is nothing more powerful in your career than your network. Nothing. Because it is everything. And every time you engage with someone is an opportunity to form a relationship that may be useful to you or you can be useful to them, which may pay back to you in other ways. You know, so... Cultivate your relationships. I think it's really important. And, and too often, I mean, we, we, we met over LinkedIn, which is interesting. But uh, the trouble with LinkedIn is that it, it's easy to connect with people. Yeah. And yeah. you think you're networking, but you're not networking really. You know, you really aren't. I mean, this is talking, getting to know one another. Uh, it's far more substantive than just a, I have a LinkedIn connection called Nick, you know. Yeah, definitely. Um, it, it, you've got to make a real effort at it. And invest in it. So those relationships are crucial. Yeah, I think that's a great bit of advice for for my listeners. Mm. It's something that has stood me in good stead, and I wouldn't be where I am without my network. And I I do think, especially in the junior grades, some people have that perception because, frankly, I think it's sold badly. Is networking is a bit sleazy? It's a bit you know, it's a bit awkward. And, and I think just like you've highlighted, just because you know you're not going to be best friends with someone doesn't mean you shouldn't keep in touch and. People want to help people who they like. Business is, like you say, about people. And I think that's a great bit of advice. Build your network. Don't just connect with 20,000 people on LinkedIn so that you can say, I've got 20,000 LinkedIn friends. Yeah. They For me, I always say um, life is about sales. Yeah. You know, I always say this to, um, to my team. I say delivery is sales and sales is delivery. 
There's no difference. People say, oh, I'm a delivery person. Nonsense. Yeah. What do you do when you're talking to a client about the business case you've just prepared? I mean, what are you doing? You're convincing them that this is a good, this is the version of the truth that they need to think about. Isn't that sales? You know, I mean, if you're a person that feels that you don't sell, you're lying to yourself. Yeah, when you go on a date, you're selling. Yeah. You know, I mean, we all end up in relationships, right? So, well, most of us end up in relationships. So, everybody can sell. Everybody does it every day of their lives. And so, stop seeing it as a negative thing. You know, it, it's not negative. Business is about connections. Business, if you want to succeed in business, the real success comes from those people who know how to connect with other people. And I think that, tell me if you agree, but I think that talks to the heart of your point where we started all the way back at the start around the difference between an inventor and an entrepreneur. Yeah. There are a lot of people who can create a product, but it's someone else who sells it. I think the, whether right or wrong, I think the famous story is the telephone. The, the chap who actually invented it didn't make very much from it because someone else took it and sold it. Now, this isn't a discussion on the moral of that, but the point is, yeah. to your point, everything's about sales. And I do agree. I, it's something I think consulting generally falls down on in that people don't start selling until the senior grades selling. Hmm. But it's an integral skill for business life in general. Oh, totally. I mean, I've just had a partner join. Um, we brought his business in because we loved it so much. He built our website, actually. Um, it's a company called Dane Creative that we we kind of acquired. It's now Alexia Creative. Um, his name's Bill Kingston. And, you know, Bill is probably my youngest partner now. But the amazing, it's like a no-risk decision for me to bring Bill in as a partner and bring his business along with him because he's built that business up and he's had, he's, he's had to sell. You know, he's a creative genius. He's a technology genius, but he's realized to build his business, he's got to get out and talk to people and he's got to show them his genius. Otherwise it's not going to happen. right? You can't just create stuff and and think it's going to work for you. So I can't stress it enough. Everybody sells, you know, and and I think this idea that I don't want to be a secondhand car salesman. No one's asking you to be a secondhand car salesman. Just have human relationships with people. You know, if you do a great piece of work, you know, I've just had we just done some work in Paris with LVMH or something. And uh, I just got some feedback on the team's performance there. Yeah. And they, it was stellar feedback. And I, I, I saw them in the kitchen here a few minutes ago. And I, I just said to them, for, congratulations, great job. You know, my point to them was that is the best thing for our firm is when yeah. you guys do that kind of stuff. No amount of PowerPoint presentations saying these are our capabilities makes up for the fact that you've just delivered such a great piece of work to a client who's never worked with us before. So you guys are fantastic salespeople. Recognize that. You know, you're sales because you're doing such good delivery. And all the difference between where you are now and where you are going to be in your next step is all you do is you say, okay, there's 10 things we needed to do as a consequence of this. Can we help you with any of those? (laughs) And if the answer is no, that's fine. If you ever need help, you know where to come and keep the relationship open. That's not hard. Definitely. Yeah. <laughs> no, definitely. I, I feel we've we've touched on a rich vein here that yeah. I'd love to keep talking about. And in the future maybe there's a round two and we can you know we can delve in more to that sales side because I think there's a lot there. I'm just yeah. I'm very mindful of your time and I, I've been threatened that you're gonna be pulled out of the room. So yeah. I, I do want us to be able to finish up. And just really two two last questions on that before we do finish up. Sure. We've covered a lot of topics today and some, sure. some really interesting ones, both for me and for my listeners. I like to read a lot of books, business books, self-improvement books. What are the books that you find yourself recommending to your team here, or what books, I, I, forgive me, I, I'm not sure how old your kids would be right now, but what books would you recommend to them? I'd... That's interesting. I'm not a great fan of self-help books, Okay, if I'm honest with you. I, I find them um, self-serving. You know, I think mm. authors, I, I think that uh, 
if you're in a firm like ours or if you're in a firm like KPMG or Accenture, I think your your best learning is going to come from experiencing it, talking to people. I think that I'm sure you can get concepts and ideas from books. I sometimes read a few books here and there, but I must be honest, I don't spend a lot of time worrying about that stuff. I would prefer people to get life experience than to listen to someone else's life experience. I know that seems a bit counterintuitive given that I'm doing a podcast here to help people, but I think this is much more about a conversation and I'm not expecting someone to take all of my thoughts Mm. and see them as right. What I'm saying is I would, in the context of listening to their friends, their bosses, their colleagues, podcasts, whatever, reading books, you're going to assimilate a whole bunch of things that for you work. Reading self-help books has never helped me. You know, I, I haven't found that very useful to me. But uh, so I find it very hard to recommend it to someone else. No, that's that that's a you know a perfectly valid answer, and I I think comes back again to your theme earlier of get on the pitch, don't sit in the stands. Which are, I'm sort of inferring is what you would you would take from that. So no, abs- absolutely fine. Mm. And the last question then, and maybe this is again to that point, is as a last bit of advice, you've got three people in front of you. You've got one who's just starting their career in consulting. You've got one who is four to five to six years in, so senior consultant, so manager level. And you've got one who is approaching partner, mm-hmm. so at that level of seniority. What last piece of advice would you give to each of them? Let's start at the entry level. I think the first thing is choose the firm that you think would suit you the best. I think a lot of times people take the job that they get offered. So try your hardest to get get into a position where you're in the place that you think would suit you the best. And my advice is be selfish with knowledge and experience. So by that, I mean, just take in as much as you can. Mm. You know, you've obviously got a very good academic qualification. You've done all the book reading. You've done all that stuff. Now it's the time for getting experience. It's Mm. trying to learn where to hammer. And you will only get that by trial and error and watching and learning and participating. If you're sitting on the bench to carry on with our analogy, watch how the game's played. If you're on the field, obviously try your hardest and take the feedback you get from the positional play you, you, you take on. But be a, a selfish sponge, right? Suck up as much as you can from the people around you and be humble enough to recognize that while someone may not be as intelligent as you, they may be smarter than you in the context of what you're trying to do. And don't have any arrogance. Have the humility and just embrace it because I think most consulting firms out there have hugely talented people in them. You will learn a lot by choosing the career that's a consulting career. I mean, it is something that you get... You, know, you get a lot of really, really good experience. So you know, make the most of it. I think for someone sort of four or five years in, even before four to five years in, I think the more the earlier you can recognize in your career the, the value, the conversation we had earlier about, the value of your network. As a first-year analyst, if you walk into a client, that's the first opportunity for you to build a network. You know, I've got uh, a young analyst here who's formed such a strong relationship with one of our clients. You know, That relationship will stand them in good stead for mm. the rest of their career. So I think if you haven't started doing it by four to five years in, you're a little bit behind. You, I yeah. think you should start thinking, how can I build my network? Even if consulting is not my career, you know, that doesn't matter. That network that you build, those clients that you meet, those projects you go on with your colleagues, because they will go on and do different jobs and different experiences. And they may be in positions where you might need to get involved. And 
these things are hugely valuable to you. So make a concerted effort to really extend your network and, and make your network um, as powerful as it can be. I think if you're on the cusp of partner or you're shooting at that now, I mean, it's a, it's not a job title, okay? You have to recognize it's not a job title. Probably all the way through to, say, senior manager, director, principal, whatever it's called in whatever firm, those are all like promotions. I say to the people that I'm looking at for partner, I'm not promoting you. This isn't a promotion. This is me asking you to go into business with me, okay? So you have to think about that step as a business person. I'm asking you to share risks and rewards of building a business together. That's what I'm asking you. I'm not giving you a title. I call yourself whatever you like, but I'm actually asking you, to, you've got the keys to my house. And if you make bad decisions in the marketplace, that affects me. You know, so when you on that cusp of making partner, don't think about it as it's the next rung on the ladder. It's just not that. It, it, if you can wire your brain to think of it as I'm going into business with the other partners, and that's a real, really important point. You need to look at those people yeah. and say, do I want to be in business with these people? Because that's what you are, right? And too often, I think people see it as a next rung on the ladder. And look, a lot of people have a lot of successful careers that way, but I'm talking to the people that I think would make partner in my firm. I'm looking for, for people who are genuinely authentic business leaders who want to be in business with me, and I want to be in business with them. So it's a two-way decision. It's not a one-way decision. Yeah. You know? and, and that requires us both to want to do it, which means you've got to like the rest of my partners, I've got to like you. So it goes beyond just the economics of it. It goes into... You and I have just met, but you know, if we decided we wanted to go into business together on a project, it goes further than just the idea. Yeah, right? oh, yeah, it's the whole relationship side, exactly. Exactly. So it's crucial, I think, if you're on the way to partnership, make sure you like the partners you're going into business with, because it's just not a fly by night thing. It's a it's a genuine commitment to do to mm. be in business together. Fantastic. Well, great advice, and thank you very much. No, it's a I, pleasure. I've enjoyed it. Thank you very much. I've really enjoyed it as well. Yeah. And for any of my listeners who want to find out more about yourself or about Elixir, where would you point them to? Where can they find you? <laughs> well, clearly the website. I mean, I think I'm very, very proud of our website. I think um, Ellie and her team have done a fantastic job mm. of that. But people want to talk to me, they can LinkedIn with me, and that's the way to contact me. I can always, um, I'll always get back to them and try and do my best to do that. So. At a personal level, uh, I'll do that. But certainly to find out more about the firm mm -hmm. and, and how to engage, then definitely the, the website. And if they're interested in us and, and, and would like to join, you know, we always, as I say, passion, determination, commitment, entrepreneurship, all of those things. If people are keen on that sort of thing, then stick your hand up and we'll have a chat. Fantastic, Stephen. Well, thank you very much and all the best for the rest of the week. Thank you, Nick. I enjoyed it. Thanks a lot. I hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Climb In Consulting podcast. If you did, I would be very grateful if you could leave a review on iTunes, Stitcher, or your podcast platform of choice, whichever one you may be using. And please also share this with anyone that you think could benefit from hearing today's interview. If you want to get in touch or give me any feedback about the podcast, please feel free to drop me an email. It's nick at climbinconsulting.com and I look forward to hearing from you.